We thank you all for coming. We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Cardinal's Way. The publisher, Thomas Dunn Books. The author, Howard Megdal. Please join me as we welcome Howard Megdal to the clubhouse. Howard, it's really a, 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 an extremely interesting book. Uh, but before we get into the book, I just would like to start with how did this type of a book uh, come about? How did this project come about? Well, so thank you for the kind words about the book. And how it came about was, in essence, curiosity that fed more curiosity. Um, I wanted to get a sense of precisely how the Cardinals had gotten to the point they had gotten to by 2013. Uh, how there had not seemed to be any sort of lag between what they had been doing and what they were doing now as we went further into the 21st century. So uh, I convinced an editor to let me go out and uh, talk to the principals in St. Louis and get a sense of it. Uh, I spent uh, about a week out there. Uh, I spoke to Bill DeWitt, I spoke to John Mozeliak, I spoke to uh, Gary LaRock, Dan Kantrovich, and came away with an enormous amount of material and felt like I had captured the what, but not the how or the why. And so I had this 5,000 word piece that I thought didn't really satisfy what I was trying to understand about the Cardinals. Uh, I, I could see it went back uh, a good deal further chronologically and that there were uh, multiple and separate lineages that led to the Cardinals <coughs> being where they were today. Uh, so on the next to last day, I, I said to Bill DeWitt, I think there's a book here. Um, I pushed my agent, um, who uh, was happy to try and find a way to make it happen. I hadn't written a book in several years, and I knew the book I wanted to write was one that I wanted to immerse myself in for several years. And uh, so that's, that's ultimately how this came to be. And uh, really, from start to finish, it came down to every question I had, everywhere I wanted to go, everything I needed to see, I was able to. And so the research, by, you know, by, that, uh, by that result, turned into something really significant and uh, quite, a, quite long as well. You know? And um, it was a real wonder for me as a journalist, something I'd never had a chance to do before, which was to get every question answered about something I was trying to explore. But uh, fortunately, I did. And so you know, it was a remarkable experience. It's actually something that struck me as I was reading this. I was, I was very surprised at how much information you got from these executives mm -hmm. or owners, executives with the ball club. Are the Cardinals different that way? Do you think if you, you wanted to do a book on whatever other team it was, mm -hmm. it would have been the same type of situation? Or are, no. do they stand alone in, in that sense? I, they do. I mean, I can't say this not having tried to write a book about all 30 teams yet. But... I can tell you that in terms of what the Cardinals did, there was a buy-in at the highest level. There was an understanding, and I do believe, and we'll get into this and we'll talk about it, but I believe the Cardinals represented something really significant about the way baseball is operating in the 21st century um, in a way that, you know, when you go back and you look at Billy Bean and Moneyball, and that's, you know, sort of pointed to as this turning point in baseball. Well, it was and it wasn't. You know, they were doing something in a new way. They were embracing analytics far more significantly than 
teams that had come before them. But throughout baseball, there was this understanding, okay, that's an outlier. You know, they weren't succeeding. They had to come up with something else, and they did. When the Cardinals and Bill DeWitt and the most tradition-bound <laughs> franchise in Major League Baseball made the decision to change their focus and not away from player development, and, and very much not away from player development, but toward embracing analytics as well, and then succeeded with it, and did it in the midst of succeeding. Because remember, they did this in the middle of a six-year period where they made the playoffs five years. Baseball couldn't ignore that, and baseball didn't ignore that. And I think it's not a surprise that you know, today you have 29 teams, uh, for the most part, emulating uh, what they're doing. You know, Walt Jockety, who was the loser of a power struggle in St. Louis, acknowledged the need to do it in Cincinnati. The Philadelphia Phillies have embraced analytics as well. And so really, at this point in Major League Baseball, you have 29 teams doing that, and then the Arizona Diamondbacks. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah. Is that your next book? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, so you mentioned chrono uh, chrono chronologically, tradition, history. Mm. So with a nod mm. towards that, I'd like to just throw out a couple of names and have you just talk about them. Uh, the first name that I would like to do uh, to, to mention is someone who most people think of. Mention his name, just Brooklyn Dodgers. Right. But Branch Rickey was with the Cardinals from 1917 to 1942. Mm -hmm. a pretty, a pretty good amount of time. Yeah. If you could just talk a little bit about Branch Rickey. For sure, and you know, and Rickey and and the Browns before that, incidentally, and Rickey essentially had a Hall of Fame career before he ever got to Brooklyn you know, before he ever got to Pittsburgh and was able to get Roberto Clemente in the Rule 5 draft. He was the reason why the Cardinals are, in so many ways, what they are today. And, um, you know, Lee's book was, uh, Lee Lowenfisher's here, was tremendously helpful in terms of research as I went forward. But the, the reality of Branch Rickey is that he created so much of the infrastructure that is baseball today. So, you know, the farm system and the Cardinals mm -hmm have been known for their farm system, and in part that's because they created the farm system. You know, Ricky actually, this was an idea he was going to uh, use with the Browns, and the Browns had an ownership change, and they didn't want it, and he went to the Cardinals, and you know, things would have been very different. The, the Cardinals were this bankrupt organization in the late 19-teens, and you know, the Browns should have been known for creating the farm system under Ricky instead of for, you know, Eddie Goodell. And so, for Branch Ricky to put this together, if it married two things, the way Ricky created the Cardinals. It married <clears throat> player development and scouting in a fundamental way with analytics. And so, you know, and we'll talk about this, but when Jeff Lunau comes in in 2003, and Jeff Lunau has a, an analytic, a stat-based way of looking at things, I view it as not something new, although many in the Cardinals organization did, and it led to a tremendous amount of conflict, I view it as a restoration of the way Branch Rickey did things and the way Branch Rickey, back in 1914, hired a man named Travis Hoke, who was hired to chart base and out efficiency. I mean, Travis Hoke was, uh, you know, a member of Sabre, what, 60 years before Sabre existed. And so Rickey's lineage, and, and just the last part of Rickey that I think is really significant <coughs> as it relates to now, is that Rickey's lineage is so present in the Cardinals today. Ricky's right-hand man, a guy who rose to the level of treasurer and 
essentially de facto first farm director of the Cardinals, and therefore first farm director for anyone, was Bill DeWitt Sr. And you know, Bill DeWitt Jr., the current owner of the St. Louis Cardinals, learned his baseball directly from DeWitt Sr. I mean, you could hardly have a more direct line from Branch Rickey, the man who created so much of the Cardinals uh, you know, over 100 years, <coughs> to the way they are uh, today. And so I think that's really significant. I think that informs a lot of how the Cardinals have developed over this period of time and why you've seen so much intellectual coherence and consistency from the team. And then a name that you just mentioned, mm. speak about him a little bit more, Bill DeWitt Sr. So when DeWitt Sr. <coughs> helped put the farm system together, he was operating in a way that was a total vacuum, a total clean slate. There were no farm systems. There were many, many teams within Major League Baseball who didn't believe in the idea. John McGraw didn't believe in the idea. The Yankees took many years to buy into the idea of a farm system. And so he really had to create something from nothing and from Branch Rickey's idea and in conjunction with him. But that was a really significant thing because for Bill DeWitt Jr., he was able to see what his father did and then how his father incorporated that into his other stops and eventually was a managing partner with the Browns and went on to, uh, to do, uh, you know, to be an executive with Detroit and, uh, and, and with Cincinnati as well, which is actually where Bill DeWitt Jr. got his first job out of baseball. And so for DeWitt Jr., whose uniform, by the way, he, they created a uniform for him and it ended up being borrowed in haste as Eddie Goodell's uniform uh, when the three foot seven player made his debut uh, you know, in 1951. And so, you know, DeWitt had, and the phrase he kept using in our interviews was baseball in the blood. And, and I think that's really significant. And again, like really a key part to the Cardinals being what they are today is the fact that Bill DeWitt Jr. has owned them for the last 20 years. And that, uh, my personal favorite chapter in the book, the language of George Kissel. Hmm. I, my guess is, most people probably have heard of George Kissel. Mm -hmm. many, many have not, especially those that may be listening to the podcast. If you could just fill us in a little about George Kissel. So let's talk about Kissel. He was first signed as a player uh, out of uh, upstate New York by the Cardinals in 1940. But what he's primarily known for, and rightfully so, is for the lion's share of his 68 years in the St. Louis Cardinals organization, from 1940 until his death in 2008, he was a coach. And so by the mid to late 1940s, instead of working his way up the system, he was working his way down the system because he was a player coach and they wanted him working with the younger players. And what's interesting about Kissel, and there's, there's so much that's interesting about Kissel, and I had the opportunity within the context of this book to uh, George Kissel's grandson, Tommy Kidwell, had preserved all of his papers and he was a pack rat and he kept everything. So I was able to spend days in Tommy, uh, Tommy Kidwell's garage going through this material that hadn't been opened since uh, Kissel had passed away in 2008. And what you see over and over again is his constant innovations, his constant desire to get better, and his constant efforts to essentially build on and incorporate what Branch Rickey himself had done with the Cardinals. I mean, you think about what the, the time frame stretches from in terms of Kissel's time with the Cardinals. Well, so he signed in 1940. He's a property of the Cardinals before Stan Musial takes a single at-bat at Sportsman's Park. He is still with the Cardinals and an active coach. You know, he didn't slow down and retire. Uh, we, we lost him, as odd as it is to say about someone who lived to be 88, but we lost him too soon. Uh, he was still an active coach in the final year of his life. 
and it was an auto accident. It was not an illness. And so lasted well into the Adi or Molina era. And there's no one in the Cardinals organization who wasn't either directly coached, managed by him, or is one person removed from him. And the best example of this is they have a guy named Steve Turco, who uh, late 1970s, you know, was, was I know not, Steve very well. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, Steve's amazing. I, I mean, it was such a pleasure to get to know him. And Steve, late 1970s, is Cardinals uh, minor leaguer in through the mid 80s. George insists that he stick around and coach. And where is he now? He is managing the Gulf Coast League Cardinals. So what does that tell you? Okay, here's a guy who's been in the organization about 35 years, about half as long as Kissel already, which is in and of itself an amazing thing, right? The very first place you're gonna send your youngest prospects, your least developed prospects, the guy you want to see them first, and that's gonna be Steve Turco, and that's where the Cardinals have him set up, and the players adore, excuse me, the players adore him, and rightfully so, and you understand why, because that guy knows so much more baseball than virtually anyone I've ever talked to. So that's the impact Kissel has had and will continue to have on an organization even seven years after he's gone. And it dates back to literally the Ricky era. The next name I, I want to touch on, and we're going to leave part of his story to the side <clears> for right <throat> now, so let's not get into the, the hacking part, but sure. the, Jeff Lunau, hmm. other, otherwise. So Jeff... I mean, picture it this way. You're in the summer of 2003 playing fantasy baseball. You love the game. The closest you've gotten to being in the game in an official capacity is you and the bleachers while you were getting your MBA at Ridley Field yelling at Sammy Sosa. And suddenly, he gets a call from a guy named Jay Kern, who's the son-in-law of Bill DeWitt. And Jay Kern had heard from Bill they were trying to look at a different way to get smarter and look at things in a different way. And Jay said, I have this guy who's perfect for you. And so Bill <coughs> comes in and they have a conversation on the phone, supposed to last 45 minutes, last couple hours, comes in to meet him. Jeff Lunau is a, essentially comes in as an executive, does turnaround work for various firms, but on the business side. You know, he was, that's, the idea was we're not selling jeans here in Moneyball, if you remember. Jeff Lunau was literally selling jeans. <laughs> Jeff Lunau was working with Land's End to try and improve the ability of people to get the <laughs> jeans uh, sized right the first time they ordered them online. So that's what he was doing um, you know, in the lead up to this time. And so Lunau had actually worked with PetStore.com and some other things. He comes to his first meeting in St. Louis. Tony LaRussa recognizes him as a guy who he had just met like, through LaRussa's charity with pet, he said, oh, you're the PetStore.com guy. <laughs> and then it turns out a couple of months later, the PetStore.com guy is giving Bill DeWitt uh, specific ideas about who he should be trading for in the winter of 2003. So there was quite a uh, culture clash that went on along with that. And you can understand it. I, I mean, I really can understand it from both sides. To my mind, there are no villains in this story. But if you are the Cardinals and you have done things in a very successful way, and gone to the World Series and continually and repeatedly winning, you know, 85, 90, 95, 100 games, and suddenly the PetStore.com guys come in and telling you how you're going to run your ball club, <laughs> it, it became quite contentious. So you mentioned there was this culture clash. Yeah. As you were speaking to these guys and interviewing them, what kind of feedback were you getting from them 
uh, directly about this culture clash? What was great about it, I think it worked to my advantage in terms of the timing. By the time I started talking to people in earnest in the winter of 2013 and then through 2014 into 2015, there was, everyone was close enough to remember. And it hadn't been that long, it been less than a decade since all of this had really been going on. But it was far enough away that people had perspective on what was taking place and people were willing to acknowledge that things had changed. Even, you know, Walt Jockety, by the time I talked to him in January of 2015, Jockety, who was fundamentally opposed to the idea of incorporating analytics into what was going on, fundamentally believed that he had not acted quickly enough to allow this to happen. And as far as, you know, people like Bill DeWitt and, you know, and Mo and Dan Kantrovitz and the other executives, the reality for all of them was, look, this happened and we're going to get a historical record of it. And, you know, again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the access, right? Bill DeWitt Jr., I think, understood this was a seminal time in baseball history. Uh, that was the argument I made to him. And um, he accepted that idea. And so the idea was not, we're not going to try and whitewash this. We're going to try and get this right so we have a, an appropriate historical record on what took place. And that was really across the board, I'd say, what I heard. Okay, so now let's move on to uh, John Moselai. Mm -hmm. uh, your, well, you interviewed him directly for the book. Sure. And just your, uh, uh, that part of it and just your thoughts in general. So he's the consummate politician, and I say that in the nicest possible, I don't mean that in like a Trumpian kind of way at all, <laughs> just so we're clear. No, I, I, you know, he's incredibly good at understanding the situation and getting to the center of it in a fundamental way. And, and the best example of that is the way in which he became the general manager. You had gotten to a point, and, and you know, what, what Mo said in, in when we talked about it, where if you had lunch with Jeff or with Sid Mejdal, you know, his, his right-hand man and now uh, a key executive with him in Houston, uh, you were public enemy number one in the eyes of some people within Walt's camp, and vice versa. There was a tremendous amount of animosity that went back and forth. Well, now, think about what then happened. When Walt was let go after the 2007 season, his recommendation was that the Cardinals hire Mo. And it was the foremost hope for Jeff Lunau and of Sid Mejdal that Mo would be the one hired. So he had somehow made himself into the consensus candidate of both sides of a tremendous civil war going on within the St. Louis Cardinals. I think that speaks volumes about it. I think the way in which he consolidated his power that came after that was vital because, again, you need the leadership at the top setting the tone and having that continuity. That's what's helped make the Cardinals be as successful as they have. But that's true of any, I think, any team and any business, really, is having that sort of continuity that continues to this day, uh, by and large, with, like you mentioned, obviously a notable exception. But very significant that he was able to do that across player development, across scouting, and really on, on the analytics side as well. And we're almost going to get to the uh, to the audience for the Q and A, but sure. I, I, there's one question I do want to ask before we get to that. Mm -hmm. And you really uh, you really wrote about it beautifully in the book. Thank you, uh, John Mozeliak and Oscar Tavares. Uh, he seemed extremely honest. Well, maybe speak a little bit about Oscar Tavares so people know the story. But then also he seemed extremely honest with you 
uh, I was I was shocked by how honest he was with uh, with you about about yeah. that. It was it was really raw, and and again that goes back to what we were talking about, where you know we were just talking about things in real time as they happened. Could so you identify who Oscar Tavares is? For sure. So yeah. So Oscar Tavares was one of the best hitting prospects I've ever seen. Um, they the Cardinals signed him uh, for one hundred forty five thousand dollars international signing. He made short work of every level he played at, hit for power, hit well over 300 every stop he went to. Um, in the time I've been a baseball journalist, I've, you know, there's that cliche, you know, the ball sounds different off the bat, right? That's happened to me three times. And it happened to me once early in my career when I was doing a story on Frank Thomas and I got to see him take batting practice late in his career. And then it happened to me twice in three weeks. And the first was Jose Abreu when I was out in Arizona and seeing him with the Chicago White Sox. And then a few weeks later, I was in St. Louis and I saw Oscar Tavares. And I, and I was not the only one who felt this way. Um, Red Shandist, his roommate was Stan Musial. So he knew a little something about hitting. When Oscar Tavares would take BP on the backfields in St. Louis, everybody stopped. Everybody turns to look and see. And, I mean, other fields, the game stopped. This is not an exaggeration. This is, everyone wanted to see what Oscar Tavares could do. And so the question was just a matter of when, not if, he was going to be a megastar. And Oscar Tavares, um, in the offseason, uh, following the 2014 season, um, was under the influence of alcohol, driving with his 18-year-old girlfriend, and he was, what, 22, I mean, so young at the time, and they, and they crashed and they both died. And, it, I mean, it was, look, it's a deeply horrific personal tragedy. And, and so forgive me for even talking about the baseball end of it, but just the idea of somebody that talented, somebody, you know, we thought we were going to see for the next 15 years as, as a baseball star, it, it was a tremendous loss in that way as well. And... So, you know, in most case, he was talking about Oscar as sort of a problem child. And, and because it was difficult to get Oscar to take responsibility. It was difficult to get Oscar to play the way the Cardinals wanted him to play. And uh, we talked the week before he died about the fact that we're going to send him to Jupiter. Uh, they, they said, we're going to send him to Jupiter, and we're going to hope that he applies himself in terms of conditioning and is really committed to what we're doing. And if he doesn't, they were going to explore having to trade him, which is sort of a remarkable thing to imagine, given his given his talent. And then this happened, and it was all moot. And like you said, I mean, he was he was devastated. You think about, you know, what could I have done differently as an executive? And it, I'm not sure he's over it yet. Yeah, yeah fascinating. It was just really yeah. fascinating to read this. Uh, well, normally it's a little happier when we turn it over to the Q and A. Sure. So we'll, yes. uh, but anyone want to ask an uplifting question? Well, listen, uh, I want to just for a second, because I, I have sure. personal dealings with the Cardinals in Jupiter. Okay. And they were very down on Oscar. Mm -hmm. I mean, from the point that the clubhouse attendants mm -hmm. would have to give him pep talks and speeches for you know you've got to apply yourself, you got to apply yourself, and they yeah. were, I know for a fact, at the end of the line with him. Right. Yeah. And if he didn't go down to Jupiter, he was supposed to go to Jupiter for six weeks under Jose Okendo was going to take him. Mm -hmm. And then he was supposed to play winter ball, which they, he didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. And they were going to make him play winter ball. And if he didn't show something, they were, that's it. 
which is amazing. Was not applying himself. He had unbelievable talent. I mean, like like almost no one I've seen. You know, just this classic swing, and like I said, you know, just the home run his first game. Oh, I mean, St. Louis had a home run his first game. It's a beautiful thing, and that and that pinch hit that pitch hit home run in the playoffs too. And you just thought it was the start of something instead of the end. What happened? He was a bust. He was there just one year. He was terrible. I say terrible because of the anticipation. Right. Here's a future great, great, great guy, and he was a bust. Well, I don't think that's fair. I mean, he was very young. It was his first time uh, playing, but no, but 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 the reality is that. It's very hard, even if uh, you you uh, are fully committed to it, to hit major league pitching, especially your first time <laughs> through. I mean, that's that's what makes it all the more remarkable when someone's able to do it. But um, no, I I I don't have much question that Tavares would have figured it out the way, frankly, he did at every other level. Even though, like you said, you know, there was there was a growing up process that had to happen, and tragically, he never did. Just, and just to, to expand it a little bit more. One of the reasons the Cardinals are so great is they had a tragedy like this, but yet were still able to plug outfield holes with two rising stars, and Randall Grichik and Steven Piscotty mm-hmm. could put Matt Adams at first base when four holes left and not even miss a beat ever. I, ever. And I have a lot of, I, I sat down with Fred Hanser once, the owner of the, the other owner of the Cardinals, mm-hmm. and we talked openly about the pool holes negotiations. It was a very interesting very, very too long or whatever, but the Cardinals could, could walk away from you. If you didn't want to go the Cardinal way, why not? Well, so, so let's talk about Pujols, because he left after the 2011 season, and the Cardinals would have liked to have signed him, and ultimately they had gotten to a point on the analytics side where they believed they were able to identify and isolate it down to a single run value. This is how much we think this player is going to give us over the life of a potential contract. And so when you get beyond that, you get significantly beyond it, as they did in the case of the Angels signing pools for his you know, age 30s and into his 40s seasons, they were able to walk away. Now, like you said, but they were able to walk away in such a way that they didn't pay a short-term price for long-term benefit. And that's sort of the amazing part when you look back at what happened with Pujols. Okay, you lose Pujols, you get two compensatory draft picks. The two draft picks turned into Stephen Piscotty and Michael Walker. So Pujols, by the time they drafted Walker and Piscotty, he had gotten off to a terrible start in Anaheim, or Los Angeles of Anaheim, if you want to call it that. And um, they brought in Walker, who by 2013 was in the big leagues, and by October of 2013 was a National League Championship Series MVP. And by 2014, have Stephen Piscotty knocking on the door, who's now in a position to really help this team for the remainder of the decade. So they really did, in that case, have their cake and eat it too. And a reason for that is sort of an expedited um, player development and scouting turnaround. And you know, a lot of that has to do with what Dan Kantrowitz did in his three years as scouting director. But that's sort of the remarkable part of it, was not just that, you know, all right, we're going to move on from pool holes, but we're moving on from pool holes and we're fine immediately. Yes? Who, who took his place on first base that he was there? Well, so Matt Adams is there now. No, no, right after Pujols. Oh, uh, well, Alan Craig was there. Craig, okay. Yeah. That's another story. Did they ever figure out why after he fell, could never hit again? No, I mean, I, you know, it's, there's got to be a backstory there. I mean, I shouldn't say that he never figured out. Maybe he did. 
but clearly, you know, that they, the Cardinals sold <coughs> relatively high on him. And to be able to bring in Lackey, and to have Lackey at, you know, essentially major league minimum salary last year, which is sort of a hidden benefit of that deal. You know, Alan Craig was a guy they were looking to for several years. They drafted him uh, and signed him early on to an extension to buy out some free agent years and bought out all his arbitration seasons. But uh, precisely what happened is hard to say. They just, they clearly came to the accurate conclusion about him when they made that deal. Yes? Can you talk about the, the, the relationship, sort of the evolving relationship and the current status relationship between the more analytic side of the Cardinals' management and ownership and their current manager? So it's a great question. And where it stands today is total bias. <clears throat> where it stands today is there is full integration between the analytics and overall management. But that was a process and that was a painful, long, painstaking process, right? When Jeff comes in, Jeff Lunau in 2003, Walt didn't really want any part of his ideas. It just wasn't something he was interested in. So they gave him international. Why not? They were spending like $50,000 on international. They weren't doing anything. <laughs> if he comes up with some players, great. If not, he's not going to take away from the real business of running the St. Louis Cardinals, you know? And then he started coming up with a whole bunch of players. And the academy got built, and he was doing more with less. And at that point, Bill DeWitt moves him over into the draft. Well, now you've got an incorporation that takes place when you first bring these players in. But by the time they get to the major leagues, and by the time you get into major league trades and things of that sort, the valuation that he's coming up with, that Sid is coming up with, they're not really being incorporated into the way the team is operating. So, you know, basically, you don't have any customers for their work. And the reason why Walt had to be let go, as far as Bill said, was you couldn't have an effort to try and produce a value for what players are worth and not have a GM who's incorporating that into what he's trying to do. You know, you have a lot of wasted energy, and then the inefficiencies you're trying to get rid of are still in existence. And so the, when he left and when, when Mo takes over, Mo understands this is something that has to be incorporated. This is the way in which we're doing it. And, I mean, it's a remarkable thing. You know, we talked about him before, but, you know, Mo was a Walt Jockety mentee. Walt brought him into Colorado and brought him over with him in St. Louis. And so Mo had to learn how to do things in a different way. And Mo adapted. And that's when you started to see fuller analytics buy -in. I'm thinking of your actual Mateen. Okay, yeah. And how, and how he is currently integrating with that system. So I know that that's not his background. It's not. And what you do see from Matheny is a willingness to go along with things they're doing on injury prevention side. And ultimately, they're not under any illusions that Mike Matheny is sabermetrically inclined in that way. But what they believe, and I think understandably so, is they have a manager who has a great relationship with his players and gets his players to play really hard. And by the way, right here in New York, you see the same thing. You see in Terry Collins, Terry Collins is not sabermetrically inclined, and he is <laughs> fond of telling us of that at every opportunity he can. But, uh, and Sandy Alderson and his front office staff very much, you know, very much subscribe to this. I mean, as a forerunner of Moneyball. Uh, but the ultimate belief is like, you know, look, Collins has them playing hard enough 
you know, as, to the best of their abilities. That's ultimately what matters more in a manager. I think it's instructive, and I think it says a lot about what these sabermetrically inclined teams have come up with on their own as far as internal metrics and what really matters, that Matheny's managing the Cardinals and the Terry Collins is managing the Mets, and you see things like that. So, uh, sure. Yes? Magdal, was, did he take that name, a chairman of uh, Decision Sciences, or was it given? <laughs> because that's, you see, I'm all for anything you want to know about the game, right? Right, right. But the arrogance of these people to think they invented the game. Uh, and, I, yeah. and, you know, the, yeah. the, the injury uh, yeah. prevention part, Wainwright's going down, mm. Wonka's going down, mm. and Adams went down. Right. I mean, uh, did you get any insight into how that happened? I will start by saying none of the arrogance you ascribe to them is something I ever saw or ever experienced. They are the very first to tell you they have not invented the game, they haven't reinvented the game, and they don't know what's going to happen. You know, it is a different way of looking at things, and it is a way of looking at things with incorporating every bit of possible information, right? And so, you know, <clears throat> the title aside, right, the idea is if we have more and better information, aren't we going to be in a position to make better decisions? Not, we know how it's going to turn out before it starts, and not, so injury prevention, we're going to prevent all injuries. But sure, well, so. The in injury prevention yeah, you're so, talking about. For sure, and so there are, there are ways, uh, many different ways. Uh, Brent Strom handled this on the pitching side, and now there's a man named Tim Levesque who does it throughout the system for the Cardinals in various ways in which they have seen mechanically that you can limit injuries, but you can't eliminate them. And to be frank, even a guy like Adam Wainwright, uh, there's this great story um, that I tell in the book that Adam Wainwright did not pitch the way mechanically the Cardinals came to believe he ought to pitch. And Brent Strom was actually talking to some of his minor league pitchers in spring training and turned around and pointed out Wainwright's delivery and said, hey, by the way, you don't want to pitch that way. That's how you end up getting Tommy John surgery. And some fans heard it, and Mo heard it, and so Strom got called on the carpet about it. But as he noted at the end of his story, by the way, Adam Wainwright had Tommy John surgery the next year. And so, you know, that's the reality of the situation, is trying to incorporate more and better information in order to make the best possible decisions. But no, I, I, I mean, there's not an arrogance I see. It's not, it's not something that comes across from Sid. It's not something that comes across from Jeff. And I think, I think that's ascribed to them, I, I think falsely, to be frank. And why do you say, though, that there's no victim, there's no, there wasn't a crime in terms of Korea? Uh, oh, no, 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 I didn't say that. Oh. There was no villain in terms of the battle between analytics oh. and, uh, and the tradition oh. within the St. Louis Cardinals. No, there was most definitely a crime that took place, number one. I mean, we know that definitively. He has literally pleaded guilty to a criminal act. Maybe uh, just give us the background Please. of that situation. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, so Chris Correa, um, in the analytics department with the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, apparently hacked into the Houston Astros computer, uh, computer system several times over a period of several years. And this is just what we know about from the guilty plea. That doesn't necessarily mean we know everything in every way in which he did so. Um, he, he's made the claim that he did so because he thought the Cardinals, or the Astros, Jeff and Sid specifically, had stolen information um, 
leaving aside the fact that that's not actually a reason to commit a criminal act, <laughs> you also have the fact that it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, it's, uh, that always sounded to me very similar to when NBC was going to go after Letterman for stealing intellectual property, like the top 10 list and things of that sort. You know, the reality of the situation was Jeff and Sid were innovators, continue to be innovators, and had, you know, and I don't think there's any surprise they've succeeded as much as they have in Houston. But Korea, and I spent a lot of time with him in person, and then he had been named scouting director, and you know, that represented the Cardinals fully buying in on the analytics side. You know, he had his own plans, and you know, I, Rin's crazy in retrospect, that he talked about, you know, I'm glad you're not asking what are we going to do without Jeff and Sig, because it's not about them, and we have our own way of doing things, and things have changed so much, and, you know, obviously in retrospect, there's a guy who's just protesting too much. Uh, but at the time, it just seemed like that was the way the, card the Cardinals were set to operate. And, th and they still are, and they're still going to operate that way going forward by incorporating analytics. But, uh, yeah, that was a setback because there was a line of succession on the analytics side, and as we've talked about here tonight, you know, that's very important within the way the Cardinals do business. Yes? So you make many interesting points. Two that jumped out to me were um, that 29 out of 30 teams now heavily use analytics, mm -hmm. uh, and, but, but a lot of the teams are sort of trying to mirror what the Cardinals do. Right. Clearly the Cardinals must be continuing to, to innovate in terms of analytics. Mm -hmm. How do they see ahead? You know, why doesn't this all become a commodity and the edge that it's developed from analytics just disappeared? So it's a, it's a great question. It's a question the Cardinals start by asking themselves from Bill and Mo on down, right? Um, their belief is, and I asked them that point blank, that the inefficiency in the marketplace, and there was this great meeting with Dan Tantrovitz, who's now assistant GM with the Oakland A's, and Jeff, and Sid, and Bill DeWitt uh, Jr., and Billy, Billy DeWitt III, and Mo, to talk about what could possibly be done and they couldn't believe the inefficiency in the marketplace. And it is their belief, and I, I think rightfully so, that that is gone. And so how do you do it if you're the Cardinals? Well, you do it in a couple of ways. One is you have a head start when it comes to using analytics and incorporating it into scouting and player development. So they've now been at it for a dozen years. So they have, you know, it's like any system. A system has to get bugs out, a system has to operate in a certain way. They've been doing it for longer. And they can plug players into a system that goes back to the very definition and creation of the farm system. And so you have that type of coherence going forward as well. So in essence, and how I wrote about it in the book is, everyone can try and do this. And, and people may come up with the next way. But if it's simply the Cardinals model, well, the Cardinals have this 100-year head start. And that's what they have going for them. I, did you? I thought you said there were two, but oh, well, there were two yeah. tied together. There's 29 out of 30. Oh, teams, I'm sorry. Yes. Everybody was trying to mirror the Cardinals. I just want to make sure I answer your question. Sure. Yes. Can you comment on a trade um, that was a player the Cardinals gave up on that didn't work out well for the Cardinals, and how bad the behavior was on the Hernandez for Neil Allen trade? <laughs> <laughs> um, I can tell you this about Keith Hernandez. He credits George Kissel for. Uh, so much of his career development. Um, in the midst of doing the research on Kissel, I came across a letter that Hernandez had written, you know, essentially talking about the way Kissel had prepared him for the major leagues. And it was, 
one of scores of letters from players who you know very well and players who barely played in the minor leagues in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, right up through the end of Kissel's time. And so Hernandez is yet another product, no different than Joe Torre learning to play third base, no different than Mike Shannon learning <coughs> to play third base, no different than Ken Boyer learning to play third base. You know, this was the reality of it. And again, I would also be remiss not to point out that just as much as this was implemented at the minor league level by George Kissel for going on seven decades, you've had Red Shandies implementing this at the major league level for, again, he was signed in 1942. And he's here in 2016. He's there early. He stays late. I was covering the 2013 World Series. Um, I w it was actually the, the night that somebody fell on Alan Craig, as a matter of fact. And uh, I filed my story. It was like 2 in the morning. I was going to my car, and there's Red. He said, hey, how are you? <laughs> and I come in early the next morning because it was a workout day. He was there. I don't know if he left. <laughs> I don't know if he sleeps there. But it was, it was an amazing thing. So there, you know, to, that trade, I think the Mets won, though. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously, him and Whitey, you know, yes. were like this. And you know, maybe you don't want to comment on it. But I, well, I was, oh, I have no problem commenting. I just don't have specific insight into into that trade other than to say that um, no I think I think the Mets did pretty well. I like to comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> By the yes. way, I got to see oh. play. Amazing. Yeah, that now did you you saw him with the Cardinals? Did you see him with the Braves too? And the no, Giants. I yeah. Well but the but the Braves, yeah, I was just going over this when you know when he turned ninety three, right? I'm really jealous of the fact that you got to see him play because in fifty seven he had he maybe had his second best year Period, and you know, you know, and led the Braves. I mean, and did that as a 34-year-old, you know, middle infielder. Just sort of a remarkable thing. So, well, yeah, I got to see all the early 60s. I have to go back and look to see, but he was near in the end, but not not close to it. You know, Greg. Um, obviously, there are constants to like changes like Kissel. Mm. I'm curious about uh, you know, what the change from the Bush family. To, to Whit meant, because in a broad sense, a lot of the same things that we're talking about were, were spoken about the Cardinals in their heyday. Right. And I know that they eventually you know, wanted out. Uh, you know, what, for, for what you know, you know what, what was the difference? I, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. It was one of the first things I tried to attack uh, was to sort of isolate that, right? Because, you know, we could say, all right, there's been this hundred years of continuity, and there has been. Um, but there hasn't been 100 years of success. You know, when I talked to John Hamm about uh, the Cardinals, he talked about how it was in the 1970s when, you, you know, you could get a ticket to Bush Stadium, no one wanted to go. You know, it was like Chase Stadium in the late 1970s. It's the same basic idea. And they, and they had that down period of time under Joe Torre. I don't, I don't know what ever happened to Torre, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, the difference was you've had this constant on the player development side. Right, whether whether it's Kissel, whether it's Turkle, whether it's you know a, a whole host of guys who are really good at what they do, they can only do so much with the raw material that comes in. So Bill DeWitt takes over end of '95, beginning of '96, and the farm system is not producing the kind of talent that they need. And then DeWitt comes to understand through the collective bargaining agreements, specifically the one in 2002, that. You're not going to be able to go get players on salary dumps anymore, like a McGuire, like a Scott Rowland, like a Jim Edmonds. You're going to have to develop your own talent 
or develop talent to be able to trade for those players. And so the commodities were going to change. So how he attacked it first in the late 1990s was by trying to go big up high in the draft. And Rick Ankiel is the most famous example of that, of going way over slot. But they tried to get those big talents that way. But he realized and understood you weren't getting depth in your farm system. You weren't going to get depth that way. You were just going to get high-risk, high-reward players and a few of them. And that was when the idea really took hold. All right, how do we sort of think about doing this in a different way? And that's where reaching out to Jeff Lunau comes into, in, into being in 2003. And that's when some changes start to happen. The other thing you saw, and the reason why you saw success in the lead-up to that moment was DeWitt's aha moment came in 2002 in the lead-up to the 2002 collective bargaining agreement. So he's very much engaged in the old model. So he's investing more money in the team, and he's letting Walt do it in a very 20th century way, in a very logical way. If you don't understand, change is coming. And you're making those changes uh, you know, into the teeth of Walt going out and getting McGuire and Roland and Edmonds and, and Darrell Kyle and so on and so forth. And so you had success leading into success, but those two changes came about from DeWitt as owner. And that was the major difference you saw you know, from Bush that you know, there was not the same level of investment and there wasn't the same level of intellectual investment. I guess it's sort of the two ways of looking at it. They weren't putting as much money in. They weren't thinking about what's next either. So I, I, I hope that answers, I, you know. Yes? Uh, going back to the um, winning Colts watch, how did Cardinals receive uh, two compensatory picks? Because usually they only receive one when a player walks. So there's, there's the, the, you get the other team's pick and you get a sandwich pick added to the draft. So one of them was the Angels pick and then the other one was between the first and second round added to the draft. So that, that was that was the way the system worked. Okay. So, I, yeah. There's the image that uh, players want to, free agents want to play in St. Louis market. Mm -hmm. Does the management have anything that they do to try to foster that image? And, and what, what is your thought about that? So I don't think it's an image. I think it's just borne out by reality. Because you see player after player after player going back decades, they come to St. Louis, they're acquired, they spend X amount of time there, and then they end up staying. They sign free agent contracts. <clears throat> they even disproportionately stay after it's done, mm -hmm. after their careers are over. They end up living in St. Louis for decades afterwards. And so realistically, that was built into, you know, instead of fostering an image, that was built into the way they planned. You know, they went and got Matt Holiday early. Rather than try and sign him as a free agent, they thought it was worth it. They gave up a lot of talent. They gave up, I want to say, their first and second round draft picks from 08 as part of that deal. Um, and they did it because they thought, well, if we could get Holiday here and playing here, we then we could convince him to stay for the long term. Incidentally, they did the same thing with Jason Hayward, and they were really, they were really convinced that it would work in the same way. It was very surprising to the Cardinals that Hayward ended up taking you know, a little less money but more to the Still point, not well. But I'm saying, but they're not <laughs> signing, you know, with the St. Louis Cardinals. He was someone they were, and, and it makes sense, right? It's a second generation contract, but it's a second generation contract from a guy who's only 26. I mean, it, it fits so perfectly with where their team was, you know, and their team is really fundamentally at like a mid-peak career arc moment. Wainwright, Molina, and Holiday, notwithstanding, mm -hmm. that's not really how they're building. 
And you can see that just even in the signing of Colton Wong uh, a couple of days ago, but also with Matt Carpenter. You know, that's the core they're looking to build around along with, you know, Walker and Martinez at the top of the rotation. So that's always been the idea. And for the most part, it's worked. And we'll see whether Hayward uh, made the right decision. It, it, it will be fascinating. I'll tell you this. I was out in St. Louis last week. They are worried about the Cubs. They are absolutely, I mean, there's this like Cubs nervousness, you know, that everyone's trying to figure out if they want to duck and cover in St. Louis. And it's going to be, I think the three, the three best teams in baseball, you could argue, are in the National League Central. When you just look at it on paper, I mean, there's um, a team in New York, uh, also, but um, <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying, but those those three teams, you can make arguments for all three of them. Yes. Cardinal fans are known to be very loyal and polite. Do you think uh, it will change when Hayward comes back? So, let's address this, right? Because there's this idea, and I I've heard it a lot, and ever since I started working on the book, every time a Cardinals fan boos, or a Cardinals fan on Twitter says something mean. I have someone come to me, see? See? <laughs> and the reality is, of course, no one is saying that Cardinals fans are perfect and at a level above, um, let's say, reproach as a group. I, I'm a lifelong Mets fan. I certainly wouldn't want to vouch for every one of the people in our group. You know? <laughs> and what I did notice is the following. They boo less opposing players. They do boo but they boo less, they show up more, they can, they're consistently out there. It helps when you win all the time. It helps when you haven't had a kid grow up in St. Louis and reach age 25 without a World Series parade since 1901. <laughs> yeah, I know, think about that one, right? anything like those kids that they have, that it's like the non-hall gang, they parade right. in red all before the game? Not just, not just the kids, but the, all, the, all the alumni come back. Again, to what we were talking about with St. Louis, everybody comes back. And they, they value the history and the tradition in such a fundamental way. But yeah, I mean, it's everything. It's, it's the horsies, the Budweiser horsies who go around. I love that. <laughs> I love the horsies. And so, yeah, there's a lot that goes into, um, you know, that reputation. But I think justifiably so. The local TV ratings are among the best in baseball year in and year out. And so there are all these different metrics that you can use to evaluate it. And there are definitely, Twitter is a, a cesspool of the human condition. And so there, you will definitely find awful things written there by fans of all 30 teams and people who are unaffiliated with Major League Baseball. Um, but no, I think, I, think there's, I think there's something to it. I do. Yes? I think one of the reasons players want to go to St. Louis and play is because it ideally is the number one baseball market. Hmm. And you mentioned the fan base. I mean, they're drawing 3.5 million a year. Hmm. But it's a region, all right? There's no big downtown area to St. Louis. It's a county, basically. But at one time, prior to the Giants and uh, Dodgers going west, it was the furthest mm -hmm. southern and western team. And there was a tradition of Cardinal baseball in Iowa, Minnesota, Arkansas. I just thought, Oklahoma, and you can listen to them every night. And there's two parts to that, right? One is, and it's such a great point, like the KMOX effect is enormous, and KMOX being able to be heard throughout the country made Cardinals fans all over, and you said also not having that, the other teams, but I actually asked them, and it wasn't relevant to the book, but I was just curious, can you see a KMOX effect in your marketing to this day, and in terms of your fan base, and in terms of 
who is you know who is coming to games, and they can, and they have a wider base of operations in 2016 than they did, you know, j dating back decades and decades. And then of course the other part that goes you know hand in hand with that is the relentless success and the fact that there's something to see. Almost it's almost generation by generation, right? So you have you know the the team you know the Edmonds team before this one. I'm saying if you go back to generation, you go back prior to the Edmonds team, and you go back to the Whitey Ball era, and you go back before that, and you go to Gibson and Brock, and you go back before that. I mean, it's nicely spaced out from a generational perspective. It lines up very well, and it makes for generation after generation of Cardinals fans. What did you do to replace the Molino? Well, it's a great question, and it's a question that, you know, if you have a nitpick with the organization, it's that it's taken a long time. You know, they drafted and developed Tony Cruz, and he has not panned out the way they hoped he would. They finally have in Brian Pena, someone who I have a, a personal affection for, which is a great quote, just as a journalist, I'm glad he's there. But more to the point, he's a guy, he's an above-average uh, signal caller who can hit a little bit. And so they actually, if Molina is resting, they're not going to lose quite as much as they did in past years. But it's entirely possible they have had to play Molina 135, 140 games, year after year after year. The guy is 33 years old. Catchers do not age gracefully. You know, Yogi and Carlton Fish notwithstanding, and Yogi moved to left, don't forget. And so the reality is, his OPS plus, if you go on, on base percentage plus sliding percentage, and then you normalize for lead and error. So 100 would represent lead <coughs> average. Molina, a couple years ago, was 129, so he was about 29% better than the lead average hitter. Plus, he was a catcher uh, you know, of unparalleled skill. He went to 102. Last year, he went to 80. Does he bounce back from that? I mean, I don't think anyone knows the answer. He was playing hurt for a good bit of last year. You know, by the end of the more year, more he was playing with one hand. We're going to get. We're, we're starting to get towards yeah. the end of the podcast time. So, if there, oh, anyone sure. else who hasn't asked a question would like to, I just want to spread it around, spread the wealth mm -hmm. around a little. Anyone else uh, who has not asked a question? All right. So we can. We'll make this the last yeah. question. For replacement. Mm -hmm. For do they have some prospect? They think be so they moved a guy named Carson Kelly to catcher, um, and I really liked him. Um, he was actually a Dan Kantrovitz pick. I believe he was originally third baseman, um, and they think there's something to him, but they obviously have their eye on it. Um, there's a guy named Chris Rivera who's in my book, um, really smart middle infielder. They moved him to catcher as well. They're trying to find this answer. You can see it obviously matters, but finding a Yadio Molina um, replacement, which, you know, with all due respect to Greg, and I apologize for speaking about him so much, uh, you know, uh, given what happened in 06, and I remember it well, um, but finding a Molina replacement, a guy who, uh, to my mind, is a future Hall of Famer, is a very difficult thing. I think it, it says everything that even the Cardinals of today are having trouble finding that answer. There's an interesting sabermetrics about Molina which was they looked at players who hit the best pitching and, mm -hmm. and pitchers and players who feasted against weak pitching. Mm -hmm. He's one of the players who hit really well against the top tier of pitchers. And it makes sense because that, that's a guy who understands the uh, psychology of that bat mm -hmm. better than anyone I'll, I'll ever know. And, and it was always and always is such a pleasure to talk to him about those intricacies. You know, I, I remember this one time 
where I was doing a story at one point when the Cardinals weren't running for this period of time, Molina was their career active leader in stolen bases. And so I was talking to him about that. And, but what was so interesting about that is, he, it wasn't with like six, it was you know, like 43 or something at the time, because even that portion of the game, and, and very few people are slower than Yadier Molina in you know, baseball today, other than you know maybe, maybe Benji when he was still in the game. But Molina had figured out how to do it and Mike Matheny, when I asked him about it, said, you know, go back and look. He didn't just do it in 10 to 1 games. And in fact, he didn't do it at all in 10 to 1 games. He was doing it in one run games and still picking his spots and finding a way to do it. I mean, that just, that just speaks to the intelligence of him as a player. Just like one of these ways where people like to say, you know, well, the stats don't bear it out. Eh, the stats usually bear it out. Yes? Um, so having been born and raised in St. Louis and um, felt I think they've, I don't think they've um, engaged it in a fundamental way. I, I, you know, you could have a different conversation, which is should they? Um, but I don't think they have. And so, you know, it was, it was surreal to be, I was out there as part of the book research, you know, while, while, the, while the Ferguson riots were at their height. And it was very strange to be at a ball game and know right nearby this was going on. It felt like there were more important things than baseball. But no, it, it's, there's, there's a way in which it's sort of uh, a world apart in that way. Um, it did intrude at times. There was that hideously ugly video that Deadspin had um, you know, of, of one of the fans leading a chant. Um, but no, for the most part, it hasn't been something where the team has engaged it. Um, we'll, see if, we'll see if that continues. We'll see you know, if things change. Right, that's a problem for all 30s. I mean, aside from Atlanta, which they're about to lose their black people, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's at least not in the lower bowl. Like in the lower bowl, it's all white faces. It's, I mean, you go to Oakland and it's all white faces. Yeah. You go to Detroit, I'll, I'll put Austin there. But, you know, Baseball has a diversity issue. There's, I mean, you know, it is my hope and it's certainly my belief that Rob Manfred understands it um, and he speaks to it. And, um, you know, the work they've done to really reinvest in uh, some diversity ideas. But they're just ideas, right? Until yeah. we see them working. Um, I hope it, I think you have to, right. it's, it's, you're not going to fix it in a year. You got to teach the Correct. kids to come out and, and yeah. I, I am hopeful it changes. I'm optimistic it changes only in the sense that baseball has always seemed to solve its problems, but it's significant that baseball once led civil rights and uh, I don't think you could say that baseball is at the forefront of that conversation anymore. Is it in any sport? That's a different conversation, but my short answer would be yes. The, the NBA, for instance. All right, well, I think we've, uh, we've finished up with the questions on a very fascinating discussion about a fascinating book. Thank you. The Cardinals Way by Howard Mendel. Anyone who's listening, please find it at an independent bookstore. Anyone here, I have the book for you. Thanks very much, Howard. Thanks for having me. Thank you.